modern cities have been shaped by the car. But as the world's population increasingly urbanizes and cities continue to swell, urban infrastructure is under strain and cars are a problem, polluting the air, clogging the streets and harming quality of life. The cities that were once shaped by the invention of the car are now turning their backs on it. Urban transport is being disrupted by small, lightweight, often electrically powered vehicles such as dockless bikes and scooters, shuttles and skateboards that are proving much more convenient for travelling the short distances that make up the bulk of our journeys. This new wave of micro-mobility promises to be more space-efficient, less polluting, more inclusive and promote more livable cities. But many questions remain around vehicles' safety and their governance, whether the business models really work, and whether they really are as green as they claim to be. This is New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit. For this episode, we look at the future of urban transportation, and in particular the role of micro-mobility in remaking urban life, separating hype from reality. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. Micromobility is booming. Brightly coloured, electrically assisted bikes and scooters, often accessed and rented via smartphone apps, are crowding out street corners in cities across the globe. Some might dismiss these as toys that are littering our streets, but enthusiasts say that they will usher in the future of urban mobility and reshape our cities for the better. Just the sort of disruptive innovation that industry incumbents can no longer ignore. Transportation is the largest contributor to global warming. So to, to make an impact, at least on that front, we need to have much more rapid change. So the question was always, how do we accelerate this process? Horace Deju is a technology analyst who coined the term micro-mobility. He thinks that while the automotive industry is moving quickly towards electric and autonomous cars, innovation in micro-mobility is quicker, more disruptive, and will ultimately have a greater impact. If you take the point of view of adoption curves and the S-curve that describes this phenomenon, and you try to look at how long will, will it take for this curve to reach saturation, meaning uh, you know 100% of the miles or 100% of the vehicles being converted to these, these new models, you're sort of looking out into the late part of the 21st century. So we're looking at something that probably will be beyond our lifespans. That's just not acceptable to me because of the need to have rapid change. And then when you look at micro, when you look at the small vehicles, they do everything faster. It's like the fruit fly versus the elephant. You know, it has a shorter lifespan. It evolves more quickly. These are the objects which absorb technology quickly, evolve rapidly, get huge amounts of energy in terms of capital, in terms of talent, in terms of people assigned to the projects. 
So what's driving this trend then? Uh, bikes and, and even shared docked bikes have been around for, for some time. Why, why is this disruption more significant? It's the same exact forces that are driving the automotive trend, which have been summarized with the acronym CASE or C-A-S-C. Uh, and the CASE stands for Connected, Autonomous, uh, Shared and Electric. And these are the, the drivers for the auto industry for the last 10 or more years when they led to the rise of, of Tesla as a sort of a phenomenon in that world. But if you look at micromobility, again, anything that is smaller than a car, all of these th things apply. Are they connected? Yes, actually, they get connected very quickly and very cheaply because of standard cellular technologies that are available now at a very, very low cost. Are they autonomous? Not yet, but there are experiments going on just as there are in cars where uh, these vehicles can self-position and can uh, self-charge and can move around uh, without anyone helping. Then you have sharing. Absolutely, you have sharing. Uh, in fact, uh, millions of such vehicles are being shared today in the form of shared micromobility. As you know, the scooters and the bikes that you can pick up on the street. And finally, uh, electric. Of course, uh, some are still powered by internal combustion, but it's actually easier to um, power these vehicles with electric drive, as you can see, very tiny scooters, and and uh, the, the motors are tiny, the batteries are tiny, and, and the, the distances traveled are tiny, which actually is the whole point, because 80% of, of distances that are traveled in cars are better served with, with micro vehicles. They're far more economical and far, far more efficient. Transport sharing in general will be vital to opening up our cities by allowing citizens to make trips on an as-needed basis, making more efficient use of vehicles, while also making more room for micro-mobility. Most people use their cars for one hour every day, and that's a huge amount of sitting around idle for a car. Sharon Masterson manages corporate partnerships at the International Transport Forum, an OECD initiative seeking to improve transportation. We had the, the opportunity to have the data from the city of Lisbon. And so we modelled, our modelling team built a model looking at the results that would be given if we took those private car trips and replaced them with trips in shared vehicles and looking at different types of shared vehicles and different number of seats in those shared vehicles. The results from this exercise were stunning. In the shared mobility city, we only needed 10% of the number of vehicles that there are today to deliver on the same level of mobility for citizens. And I think that's really an important point. Congestion disappeared, CO2 emissions fell by a third, and also the on-street parking space was no longer needed. So that gives you free space within a city and valuable free space to do other things like have parklets, have outside eating areas, which we see more commonly nowadays. And in the city of Lisbon, that is really that free space was the equivalent to 210 football fields, just to give you a visual idea of what that was. And of course, we, other, we looked at other cities as well. We looked at Dublin, Lyon, Helsinki, Auckland, and those results also confirmed similar patterns. This mobility revolution could be even more impactful in rapidly growing cities in Africa and Asia, where pollution rates are dangerously high. In India, bike-sharing startup Yulu is seeking to address not just mobility challenges, the serious and growing problem of urban air pollution. Our cities kind of lost their charm, where we all we see is traffic and pollution. Amit Gupta is chief executive of Yulu. Out of uh, top 20 cities globally, 
uh, with worse air pollution indian india are basically having 14 spots in that so 14s of our cities have poor air quality problem but if i look at the bigger picture 40% of that pollution is contributed by vehicle movement and that's when ulu got started we actually saw the problem of mobility and problem of air pollution in a box and i would actually not say replacement of the car people will still have their own vehicle maybe for different use case but certainly a mass replacement of miles being travel on car so now the point is that if let's say everyone starts to use public transportation and micro mobility in to complement that how our cities will change uh, how the road will change the public spaces which currently are being used for car parking and things like that and supporting infrastructure is that possible to start with <clears throat> and if yes what is the path and how it looks like and what it will do to our city and our citizens i think this vision is very very fascinating and we can see some reality to this vision when you look at singapore where they have kind of a vision that you should be able to reach from point a to point b in 35 minutes flat no matter whatever same vision is being now talked about in the context of paris where it's a 15 minute city vision and i believe that the mayor is now doing systematic changes to the city and the mobility uh, paradigm by taking away the car parking spots giving it to something which is much more as a part of the sustainable city vision and i believe it is not a, a dream or a fantasy it is something which can be brought into reality horace deju says micromobility is already reshaping cities once dominated by cars with european cities leading the way you can find places in the world where the future has happened i mean we saw this in electric cars with norway norway was the first and now it's in the, effectively in the late stages 80% of the vehicles sold are electric but if you look at the netherlands if you look at at denmark if you look at the nordics in general if you look at even germany uh if you look at what's happening in paris today is that this is a fait accompli this is a done deal the idea of the bicycle being the dominant species is old news then the car being a sort of a guest on the road is again is becoming normative now one could argue and this is crazy this is nonsense and in my world this makes no sense but again we would have said the same thing 20 years ago about, about smartphones i was at nokia we you know there's a sense of deja vu completely about this this podcast is supported by pictay wealth management Julian Holtz, a market strategist at Pictet, sees growing cities as a major challenge for the future, and innovation in urban mobility as key to overcoming it. Today, our cities are home to around 56% of the people on this planet. But as the global population grows, cities will swell to make room for more than two-thirds of human life by 2050. Without careful planning. population growth can clog city streets, increase pollution and exacerbate the many inconveniences commuters already face today. But to get people out of their cars and using other types of transport, Julian believes changes to urban infrastructure and the technology that underpins it will be necessary. 
This challenge is not insurmountable. The concentration of people in one location generates significant synergies, be it in terms of travel time, energy efficiency, or use of public space. Instead of using their own car, people living in cities are more likely to take public transport, which remains by far the most efficient mode of transportation, or make use of ride-hailing and car-sharing services. The key is to take a step back and consider the full ecosystem that allows these emerging innovations to thrive. Mobility solutions, individual and shared, increasingly rely on sophisticated software from path optimization algorithms to payment systems to digital platforms that require significant research, development and maintenance. But gaining access to such opportunities is complex as it increasingly means investing in companies very early on. And it won't just be cities that will look different. Businesses will also need to adapt to meet the evolving needs of urban populations. We'll continue to see a big shakeup of the mobility ecosystem in the coming years. Partnerships, integration and acquisitions will all shape the market and separate the wheat from the chaff in the current flurry of mobility startups. Regulation will play a major role. Some could be helpful, like setting aside more lanes and parking space for e-scooters. Smart cities will increasingly digitize and integrate transport systems. To predict our direction of travel, we must look at mobility as one piece in an evolving urban ecosystem. New technologies are already merging transport with other elements of our daily lives. If we slow down to look at these intersections, we may spot the innovation that will define mobility for generations to come. There is a flurry of startups fueled by venture capital looking to profit from opportunity in inner city transportation. McKinsey, a consultancy, reckons that by 2030, up to 40% of urban car trips could be replaced by micromobility services, a $500 billion annual opportunity. The COVID-19 crisis could further boost acceptance by individuals and by city governments as city dwellers shy away from crowded public transit alternatives. The challenge is always going to be how to integrate these ideas into dynamic living cities and existing infrastructure and build new infrastructure to support them. As cities today are moulded around the very technology these cities are looking to replace, the car. However, Horace Dedu sees the car's own journey to acceptance and ubiquity as the blueprint for how new technologies can evolve. I began this journey looking at the history of the automobile and the history of, of the business of the automobile and the, and the adoption of the automobile and the social aspects of uh, of that and the infrastructures that came with it. And the automobile has had the most precarious of births. The fragility of it all, the low end nature of it relative to rail, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of laws, the lack of supply, lack of resources. There was n there were no gas stations or filling stations, no petrol stations, no, no service stations. All these things existed in the early 20th century. And that wasn't that long ago. And so how did it go from something that was uh, flimsy, uh, precarious, and, and somewhat unsupported and prone to breaking down and, and smelly and, and all these things that was wrong with the car. And, 
And yet it sort of now dominates the way we live. It uh, redefined uh, our cities and our redefined our country sides and, and redefined our shopping and our redefined our socializing and and so on. And so I actually take hope from the car because the we are able as a society to terraform based on technology. History shows that you know, as roads and, and rail and canals and even aviation have shown, the infrastructures tend to follow the devices. We didn't have airports before we had airplanes. Uh, we didn't have the in, interstate highway system before we had high-speed cars. Uh, the, the, these things proceeded by decades. Um, you know, the device proceeded. You know, same with the cell phone. You know, we, we, we had the iPhone and then we had 3G or 4G or 5G. So it, it is chicken and egg problem. And in this case, the egg is the thing that starts every, starts it off. And, and so the vehicles are going to be there, hundreds of millions of them. And then the infrastructure will follow because, frankly, it's obvious that it needs to exist. Um, there might be some resistance, and that will go through the normal process of early to late adoption. And some will be leaders and some will be followers. That's to be expected. Um, but again, the theory and the history is abundant on the matter. The interesting business models that are going to emerge would be things like uh, bundling in terms of services and in terms of ancillary things like uh, providing apps and we you know what are the apps of micromobility well things like um, exercises things like commerce and couponing and um, incentives for people to go shopping using the vehicle what I call redirecting uh, the audience and redirection is what what the internet actually makes money on today it's not provisioning of bandwidth but uh, redirecting people to different services um, that's how uh, Google and Facebook make their money but I was saying in the late 90s that, you know, pocket computing would be would be the way of the future. But we, we didn't imagine what it would look like. It would have would it have a keyboard or not? Would it have a would it be a flip format or sliding format or 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 something else? Um, but that's that's how it was. And the, the vision of there being or rather the idea of of a future was correct. The timing was unknown and it's exact configuration was unknown and certainly there, therefore as a result who was unknown and it was unknowable who would dominate uh, mobile computing uh, it turned out to be a company that was uh, uh, not it was almost dead at the time which was apple and one which was non-existent at the time which was google so we cannot envision who will be the micromobility company would it be a, one of the names we know today would it be even a tech incumbent Hard to say. I don't want to, you know, the theory suggested someone new, but it's possible for, for an existing company to adapt, even an automaker, perhaps, if they were really visionary and uh, broke all the rules, uh, their own rules to do so. Uh, but that's that's why it's so exciting to to be in this world is to sort of make this guess and try to foresee the unforeseeable. City planners will need to be on the front foot thinking about how cities as a whole can become more local. Carlos Moreno, an urban theorist at the Sorbonne and Paris's special envoy for smart cities, has developed the concept of the 15-minute city. Cities in which citizens can access everything they need within a 15-minute radius. Moreno says micromobility will play a critical role in allowing people to engage more in their immediate surroundings, but only if cities themselves actively move towards greater localism. We need to change our mindset before to discuss about mobilities or micro-mobilities. 
we needed to discuss what are the services available in my vicinity. In the 15 minutes concept, our methodology is before all, uh, what are the services available? We don't have uh, enough uh, services with the urban social functions in the mixity. We needed to propose them. The first uh, point, uh, in fact, with the 15 minute city, is to change the rhythm of the urban life. It is not possible to continue to live with uh, uh, people in the compulsory uh, mode uh, for uh, moving during one hour and two hours uh, daily in a round trip only for uh, working. On the other hand, uh, we have in cities thousands and thousands of square meters. But the square meters in cities, in particular the building, the infrastructures, are used for one functions. The school only for studying, the restaurant for eat, for drink, the town hall for administrative tasks, the building office only for working, etc. We live in cities with the very important verticality for each one of functions. With the 15-minute cities, we wanted to develop the multipurpose functions in the square meters. We wanted to uh, do for uh, each one of the square meters, we could uh, use for different activities. If you have the possibility to develop the multipurpose uh, functions, uh, in this case, we could reduce the um, compulsory commuting. Micromobility in the form of electric bike and scooter sharing shows promise for less polluting transit, promoting more localism and livable cities. It is also claimed to be more inclusive, especially across socio-economic divides. All this disruption, though, is disruptive. The first phase of micromobility has been relatively lawless, a free-for-all, as many companies saturate cities with copycat vehicles to try and capture the market, with little oversight and with city governments playing catch-up. What's required then from policymakers and from urban planners to integrate micromobility into cities safely and successfully? Amit Gupta again. It cannot be left to private organisations and give them free hand to do what they want. This is the framework for safety. This is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. Don't flood millions of bikes in my city. I'm not ready. No. So city can actually govern that this is the total number of vehicles which are allowed. These are the three or four or five players who are giving me all of the assurance and they pass my preliminary test. And then they have been given a quota so that the operators should understand that they are working with the city authorities in improving the city's mobility condition. It's not a war or it's not a battle where everyone is just pushing vehicle, making the city, you know, unlivable and everywhere you are seeing bikes, there's no accountability of service or the, or the vehicle maintenance and repairs, everything. So this is where I believe the future lies. 
where the companies, the operators need to take accountability of their acts and they all work towards the improvement of the mobility in, in their cities. And I think this is absolutely possible. In India, that's the policy that we have co-drafted in the cities where we have we have been working. The cities are at a crossroads at the moment. We've done a lot of work at the International Transport Forum over the past number of years on shared mobility. But as we start a new decade in 2021, we really have to look at what is the type of city we want to build for the future. Rather than playing catch up, Sharon Masterson says regulators will need to be more proactive to address matters of safety. When we speak about safe micromobility, it really is important to look at a number of different aspects. So firstly, vehicle design, but also the operation of the fleet, the infrastructure and the regulatory environment and training for the use of these vehicles. But not only that related to these vehicles in particular, it's also very important to sensitize other road users and, and other vehicle users as to um, how vulnerable micromobility is and users of micromobility and other active modes of transport are. So it's trying to find this was the correct balance between looking at this from a micromobility user perspective, but also looking at this in the broader context of all road users. As we know, industry is very often ahead of regulation. And this is why we at the International Transport Forum believe it's very important to bring all the necessary stakeholders together upstream to understand what is happening before important policy and regulatory decisions are taken. And this is what we do in the work with our corporate partnership board, which is why when we see new service models, like for example, Uber, which came on the scene, policymakers were really caught on the back foot because they were not ready for something like this. And this is why it's important when we look at regulation going forward, for example, in micromobility, that we try and future-proof all future types of mobility like uh, the different ones that we have at the moment in these regulations. And bringing together all the stakeholders enables us to have a very real dialogue on what is around not just the next corner, but the corner after that, uh, in understanding the potentials of technology, what's about to come out, what are the new um, energies that are, that are in the pipeline, um, what are the new business models that are coming out? Because if we remember on that, uh, Uber really was a new business model and not a, a new technology. It was based on an existing technology. So this is why we bring very much our discussion points as, as upstream as possible so that policymakers already have a reference point in understanding what's happening here before they make these important decisions. Horace did you again. I understand. I understand the resistance. I understand the fact that many planners are themselves are laggards, the fact that cities are often not run by technologists. So what I'm expecting for the adoption, if you will, of, of micromobility by those who are in a position to uh, regulate it or um, prescribe it or uh, permit it, is that they'll probably wait a few more years and then it will be all at once. It will be a global I don't want to be last kind of race, you know, fear of missing out and so on. That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series, along with articles and further reading, at newfoundations.economist.com. <laughs>